A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Ancestry.com.au. You've seen the faded sepia photograph, but how tall was your great-grandfather? How much did he weigh? What colour were his eyes? And did he really have a mermaid tattoo? These are the sort of details that can turn a family tree into a colourful and compelling personal history. And they're the sort of details you can sometimes discover in military and or police records at Ancestry.com.au. I use Ancestry constantly to research and write this podcast, and it could help you piece your past together too. For more information, go to Ancestry.com.au because there could be more to your story. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respects to Aboriginal elders past and present. It's the morning of Monday the 11th of December 1882 and Messrs R.J. Turner, Stipendry Magistrate and J.C. Ferguson, Justice of the Peace, preside at the police court in Port Adelaide. This seaside hall of justice is a new building and since opening earlier in the year it's seen the usual crimes and misdemeanours that come with any shipping town. For their sins, prostitutes, drunkards, deserters and other miscreants are here punished with small fines and or short jail sentences. But more serious offenders, those who'd bash or rob or worse, are committed to stand their trial in Adelaide. This morning's court list starts with the run of the mill. First up, John Bain. He's an able seaman. Able, that is, when he's not stumbling around in an alcoholic haze as he was yet again this past weekend. John Bain is given 14 days in jail as a habitual drunkard. Next before the bench are three small boys, Edward Lane, William Ray and Frank Hoare. While they could have earned two and six by collecting a hundred sparrow eggs, these lazy little layabouts instead stole seven shillings worth of old copper, which they then sold for a measly bob. The men of the bench, displaying the wisdom of Solomon, order that the little thieves be discharged. On the condition, they're whipped by their parents, in the presence of police, just to make sure the kids get a righteous flogging. Next court customer is the piquantly named sailor Israel Storm, who arrived in port aboard the good ship Hannibal. Mr Storm had wanted his captain to discharge him. When the master refused this request, Mr. Storm turned stormy and refused to work. For disobeying his orders and thus dishonouring his contract, Israel Storm will spend one month in jail. With these trifling bits of business out of the way, the Port Adelaide Police Court can get on with the major matter of the day. This is the one that the inky-fingered journalists are here to record for the readers of the South Australian and the intercolonial newspapers. William Burns, the young English sailor now in the dock, was yesterday morning brought ashore in irons from the British ship Douglas, and he stands accused of the stabbing murder of the vessel's second mate, Henry Lowton. Though this savage slaying occurred on the high seas in September, nearly three months ago, 
British law dictates that the charge be heard here first to determine whether there's sufficient evidence to commit Burns for criminal trial in the Supreme Court. Port Adelaide hasn't seen a maritime murder case this sensational since 1873. Back then, four men were charged with killing the captain of the bark Tongay while it was at anchor. But the man who stands accused of murder today in Port Adelaide court might take solace from the Tongay case. That's because two of those who were accused were acquitted at trial, and the two who were convicted both had their death sentences commuted. If that outcome is any measure, William Burns might hold out hope for his freedom, or at least for his life. I'm Michael Adams, and this is Dark Threats and Darker Secrets, part two of the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Birdman of Adelaide Jail. Part three, Not Dead But Gone, will be released later this week. If you're an Apple or Patreon supporter, you can hear how this tale turns out right now, ad-free. By becoming a supporter, you'll also help me to make this podcast. As a thank you, you'll get a show shout-out, early ad-free access to every new episode, and exclusive bonus shows, which feature everything from ghosts and scandals to bushfires and murders. You can also now get a one-off free trial via Apple and Patreon, which will give you access to everything without paying anything, Just be sure to cancel before the trial ends. Apple and Patreon links are in your show notes. Also in the show notes, you'll find a link to my new book, The Murder Squad, How Australia's Toughest Cops Hunted the Monsters of the Great Depression. William Burns stood charged with having feloniously, willfully and with malice of forethought murdered Henry Lowton. The accused had given his age as 27, but newspaper reporters reckoned he looked far older. One journalist saying he seemed closer to 40 in appearance. They all agreed he was pretty ugly. The scribe for the Express and Telegraph kept his description pretty simple, saying Burns was, quote, a small, insignificant-looking man of very unpleasing appearance. But the Kapunda Herald's correspondent waxed a little more lyrical. His general appearance is not prepossessing, rather slightly built, with a dark, dirty-looking complexion, long face, short black whiskers and beard, and a thick head of short black hair inclined to curl, and growing low down on the forehead make up a facial expression which may be described as that of an old-looking, bad young man. For good measure, the Kapunda Herald also threw ethnic bigotry into its mix. Quote, Burns is by birth a Plymouth man, and probably of Irish parentage. Just as everyone agreed that William Burns was no oil painting, everyone agreed that he'd killed Henry Lowton, and that included the accused. The outcome of this police court hearing, and the verdict in any subsequent murder trial, would hinge only on the question of why. The answer might result in Burns being discharged or acquitted on the grounds of self-defence or being convicted on the lesser charge of manslaughter. Captain John Wilson was the first witness. He told the court the Douglas had sailed from Hull on the 29th of June. It had taken on a cargo of timber at Calix and left that Swedish port on the 6th of August. Around 10.30 on the night of the 23rd of September, Captain Wilson had ordered second mate Henry Lowton to have the 10 men of the watch take in the studding sails because the gale was increasing and there was stormy weather ahead. Captain Wilson had been on the poop deck 150 feet from his men. 
the night had been very dark. Even so, he'd been able to see that the crew members had stopped working. Captain Wilson had called out, What's the matter? He'd gotten no response, and so he jumped down onto the deck, which put him 20 feet closer to the men. He called out again. Now, able seaman Robert Bible shouted back, The second mate is stabbed, sir. The captain had called out to bring Henry Lowton back to a crew cabin as quickly as possible. Asking who committed this act, William Burns had said, I did it, sir. By the time Henry Lowton had been lowered to the deck of the cabin, he was dead. It was then that Burns had claimed he'd only acted in self-defense, that he'd stabbed Henry Lowton after the man had hit him. As master of the ship, it was thereafter Captain Wilson's duty to play detective. He'd make observations, interview Burns in the presence of witnesses, and record his findings in the ship's log, with these entries signed by crew members as being true accounts. Captain Wilson described for the court examining the wound in Lowton's neck. It had been two inches long, shaped like a triangle, with a piece of flesh hanging from the bottom. It was as though Burns had thrust the blade in and then twisted it. Captain Wilson said that the accused had offered no resistance to being locked up. He was put in hand irons in the front room of the cabin. At first, Captain Wilson hadn't thought to take the murder weapon into custody. Prompted by his men, Captain Wilson went to Burns and asked him to hand it over. The accused did so without protest. He'd made no effort to get rid of it. The knife was now produced in evidence, and its blade still bore bloodstains. Captain Wilson explained that it was customary for sailors on duty to carry such knives hung in sheaths from their waists. So, as far as premeditation, Burns had not needed to go and fetch a weapon. He'd had one right to hand. Captain Wilson told the court he'd asked every man who'd been on the watch if they'd seen Henry Lowton strike William Burns, but none had. The captain had asked Burns if he had any marks where Lowton had supposedly hit him. Burns said he did not. But in support of his claim that Lowton was a hitter, Burns said that the second mate had on a few occasions cuffed the cabin boy, Matthias Day. The captain asked Matthias if that was true. The boy said that Lowton had cuffed him, but that he'd never been hurt. The boy said he actually had deserved worse, and he'd been cuffed because he'd been stupid. Captain Wilson told the police court that Henry Lowton had signed onto the Douglas with very good discharges, and that during his time aboard the vessel, he'd appeared to be on friendly terms with the rest of the crew. The captain did mention that he and the deceased had had words in Calix, but that it was a minor matter. Relevant entries from the ship's log were read into evidence. On the 24th, Captain Wilson had mustered the men who'd been on the watch. Robert Bible, George Cooper and the English boy George Clark were among the five who'd been on the main deck with the second mate. The rest had been on the forecastle head. Henry Lowton's initial instruction had been to start lowering the top gallant studding sail. But then he'd changed his mind, saying, We will take in the lower studding sail first. Coming off the forecastle head, William Burns had said, Why the hell don't you say so? Lowton had replied, I will take none of your cheek, Burns. As Captain Wilson wrote in the log, Lowton, quote, made a motion with his hand. Whether he touched him or not, none of the watcher able to say. But Bible and several of them saw Burns putting his sheath knife into his sheath again. The log recorded that Robert Bible had said to Burns, You have stabbed the man. 
the accused had replied, I know I have. Captain Wilson's entry that day also recorded, quote, I examined Burns before the mate, carpenter and sailmaker and found no marks on him. This entry had been signed by all the crew. Also on that day, the crew committed Henry Lowton to the deep with the usual religious ceremony. The next day, the 25th, Captain Wilson read the recent relevant log entries to William Burns and asked if he had any statement to make. Burns had said he did not. Captain Wilson took the irons off him but kept Burns in the cabin. He was to get the usual food allowance and be brought out each evening for exercise. But the crew members were uneasy with this arrangement. On the night of the 26th of September, after Burns had been out on the deck taking his evening stroll, a deputation came to the captain. Captain Wilson recorded, quote, They are all afraid that should all hands be aloft, shortening sail, that he would attempt to break out of the room where he is confined, and that he might try to murder some more of us. Captain Wilson had Burns put back in handcuffs. He ordered everything removed from the cabin, and he placed a guard on the door. But that night Burns did himself no favours when he got up to the barred window and called the chief officer an Irish thief. With well over two months to go before they reached Australia, Captain Wilson couldn't have this state of affairs. He ordered the carpenter to build a separate strong room out on the deck to house the prisoner. Captain Wilson then got the crew to inspect this cage that he'd had made for Burns. They were all satisfied that it would hold him. So, in he went, out of harm's way. The next best thing, perhaps, to throwing the murderer overboard, which is what superstitious sailors might have done once. By now, the crew were telling the captain more about William Burns. He wrote in the log, quote, They are all very much frightened of him, as they say he used to make use of threatening language in the forecastle at times. It is the wish of the crew that he should be kept in irons all the time. But Captain Wilson was a merciful man, so at least he wrapped Burns' handcuffs in cloth so the steel would not cut into his wrists. And the carpenter was brave enough to take it upon himself to escort the roped and cuffed prisoner around the deck each night for exercise. When Burns asked for tobacco, Captain Wilson approved the request, the carpenter passing a pipe to him a few times a day so he could smoke to settle his nerves and aid his digestion. In the log entry of the 9th of October, Captain Wilson recorded a new detail of the crime, which was now more than two weeks in the past. Quote, I have again been speaking to several of the seamen who were present when Burns killed Henry Lowton. They say Burns dipped himself under the studding sail and then made a sprint at him, but none of them thought he was going to stab the mate. So, according to this revised version, now put before the court, the accused had needed to navigate under an obstacle to get to his victim. This, of course, lessened the chance it had simply been him lashing out with his knife in the blink of an eye. A month later, on the 10th of November, William Burns refused to come out of his cage on deck. Captain Wilson wrote, He says he has taken plenty of exercise in his house, and there is also plenty of fresh air. The captain's entry continued. I then commenced to speak to Burns about the terrible crime he had committed. Burns replied that if he lived for 40 years and an officer of a ship or any other man was to touch him, he would do the same thing again. He would cut them. 
those did not sound like the words of a remorseful man. By the 5th of December, Douglas was sailing across the bottom of Australia and was less than a week from Port Adelaide. Captain Wilson went back to Burns and read aloud all of the log entries relevant to him. And then the captain recorded their interaction. Quote, When the entry regarding the murder of the second mate was read, I said, the whole of the watch has signed this. He, that is Burns, replied, The man at the wheel and the lookout knows nothing about it. I explained that the man at the wheel had not signed it, but the man on the lookout had. Captain Wilson had said to Burns, The only thing the man on the lookout was not sure of is what you said when you came down off the forecastle. The captain's entry continued, quote, He, William Burns, also said that Harris and one or two more of the men saw the second mate strike him, and they were going to swear his life away. But what William Burns did not deny at least as recorded in the captain's log entries, was that he'd spoken in an insulting manner to Henry Lowton. Nor did Burns make any claim that he'd only meant to wound the man, or that he hadn't aimed his blade at the man's neck. Sailor Robert Bible was next to testify. Bible, who'd been at sea on and off for nearly a quarter of a century, said that in the immediate aftermath of the stabbing, Burns had appeared quite cool. He confirmed for the court the details of the verbal clash between the two men and that Lowton had raised his hand when he was about two steps from Burns. Moments later, Lowton's hand was at his throat as he said, Burns, you have mur- Burns, you have murdered me. That was what he'd been trying to say. Instead, his hand fell, blood spurted, he fell against the spars and was soon dead. Robert Bible told the court he thought that Burns was a quick-tempered man. What Burns's defending solicitor wanted to know, though, was whether Bible had actually seen if Lowton had struck Burns. Bible said it had been dark, and it was possible the second mate had struck the sailor, but he hadn't seen it because in that second or two, that crucial second or two, he'd been distracted by something and looked away. Bible told the court that Henry Lowton had been a very strong man, but that he had had no cause to be afraid of him. He said he'd never seen Lowton hit anyone. Though he did have to admit he had seen Lowton shake the Dutch boy for the Dutch boy's stupidity. The deceased had also been in the habit of shaking his hand when giving orders. Answering a question from the Crown solicitor, Robert Bible said, quote, The deceased was not a favourite with the men, but they all respected him because he never made use of any harsh expressions when giving orders. Robert Bible also told the court he'd not heard any words exchanged between the deceased and the prisoner previous to the killing. But what he could testify to was that William Burns had previously made a fairly dark threat. Quote, I have heard the prisoner say that he would use a knife on anyone who struck him. Two of the other crew members, George Cooper and Daniel Lean, corroborated the key details as given by Captain Wilson and Robert Bible. William Burns made no statement. There was more than sufficient evidence against him and he was committed to stand trial for murder. Although it had been nearly three months since the stabbing, the wheels of justice were now turning swiftly. Criminal sittings were then underway in the Adelaide Supreme Court and William Burns's case was scheduled for the following week. 
the prisoner was moved to his new home in Adelaide Jail. And there, he'd have a cellmate. This was a baby sparrow that had been taken from a nest inside the penitentiary. Who found it? We don't know. But it's reasonable to assume that the nest had been raided as part of the South Australian effort to exterminate this plague of pests that were destroying crops and orchards. The government was paying a bounty for sparrow heads and for sparrow eggs. Yet this bird's death sentence had been respited. It had been spared. Rather than snap off its head and be paid half a penny, the unidentified saviour took the tiny feathery creature to William Burns. While the Gospel of Matthew had told Christians that a sparrow didn't fall without God being aware of it, inside Adelaide Jail, the governor, John Howell, was God, and he knew most of what was going on. By then, Mr. Howell had served nearly 30 years in the South Australian penal system, and for the past decade, he'd been in charge of Adelaide Jail. He was a benevolent and enlightened ruler. In an article about the jail, headlined A Picturesque Penitentiary and published in the Adelaide Observer in November 1878, he was described this way. Mr. Howell is an admirable supervisor of the establishment under his charge, and he enables mankind generally to be able to testify that he unites with his poetic fire the invaluable desiderata of sound common sense and much practical knowledge of the art of convict government. Governor Howell, this man of poetic fire, this ruler of the jail, saw no harm in his prisoner having a pet. Taking care of and taming the bird might help the man keep calm in what would certainly be harrowing days ahead. Governor Howell had been through this all before. Since taking charge of Adelaide Jail in 1873, it had been his melancholy duty to look after far too many people facing death sentences. Happily, South Australia prided itself on having an executive that regularly commuted the death sentence. Even so, in the past decade, five convicts had been hanged inside the walls of Adelaide Jail. This included the woman, Elizabeth Woolcock. No doubt Governor Howe thought it'd be a good thing if a baby bird could help Burns take his mind off the terror of the gallows. Sparrows can fly by the time they're 14 days old, but they remain dependent on their parents for two weeks beyond that. William Burns had to keep his little bird safe, fed and hydrated. He would have given it live insects that he caught, for these also contained the water that the bird needed to survive. When it grew a little bigger, he'd be able to offer it rice, potatoes or breadcrumbs from his daily rations, and also let it drink water from a cup or bowl. As a prisoner awaiting trial, William Burns was allowed to wear his own clothes. It's a reasonable bet he kept his baby sparrow in a pocket for much of the time. As far as accommodations went, William Burns's prison cell was likely preferable to many of the cabins he'd endured on British sailing ships. That 1878 Adelaide Observer article tells us, quote, the cells are all over 12 feet in height and are beautifully clean and admirably ventilated. Sparrows don't like to be confined, but the cell was big enough to not feel like a cage. With the prisoner as its parent, the bird bonded to Burns. 
Elsewhere in Adelaide jail at that moment, also awaiting trial and also in the shadow of death, was another bonded group. Patrick McGree, his wife Elizabeth and their 14-year-old daughter Margaret. This trio was charged with the murder of a Danish man named Christian Renderup at Hanley Bridge on the 12th of November. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. On Monday the 18th of December, all of South Australia was riveted when the McGrees went to trial in the Supreme Court. The family members were charged with maliciously murdering Christian Renderup, with whom they'd been partying during a drunken debauch. Their case caused much disquiet because the victim had allegedly assaulted the wife Elizabeth before he'd been killed. After a trial lasting three days, daughter Margaret was acquitted, but her parents Patrick and Elizabeth were convicted. Asked if they had anything to say before sentence was passed on them, Patrick said no. But Elizabeth stunned the court by saying that she was pregnant. A Christian civilization just could not hang a woman who was with child. But everybody knew this. Was Elizabeth McGree lying in a bid to save her life? The only way to determine this would be to impanel a jury of matrons. They would examine her and they would decide whether she was quick with child. While that was being done on Thursday the 21st of December, continuing what one newspaper called a week of horrors in the Supreme Court, William Burns went to trial for the murder of Henry Lowton. Much of the same evidence from the police court was repeated by witnesses. The verbal altercation between Lowton and Burns, Lowton bleeding out from a neck wound that looked like the knife blade had been twisted, Burns admitting he'd done it but claiming he'd been hit by the deceased. But this time there was more detail, and in this detail the Crown would seek confirmation the crime had been murder, while the defence would sow doubts. A few more crew members were also called to give testimony. There was more focus on accounts that Burns had ducked under a rope in order to stab Lowton, and the court also heard more anecdotal evidence about the nature of the accused. Captain Wilson's testimony about the immediate aftermath of Lowton's death included him asking Burns about his claim he'd been hit by the deceased. Captain Wilson had asked, Have you any marks to show? Burns had replied, No, I have no marks. But here the sailmaker had also chimed in to ask if Burns had any pains. Burns replied, No, no pains. Captain Wilson told the court the sailmaker had then remarked, of course you haven't, because the man never struck you. And Burns had shot back, So you say, old sailmaker, you can blow your horn now. It came across as an aggressive remark. One more brushstroke in the portrait the prosecution was painting of Burns as an angry and vindictive man. Witness Robert Bible repeated his evidence. 
but this time there was an emphasis on who'd been precisely where on the deck. Burns had been at the foot of the forecastle ladder, Lowton had been at the halyards, and between them had been that lower studding sail rope. This rope, Bible said, was made fast to the bottom of the sail at a slight angle and was about the height of a man's chest. He said that Lowton and Burns had had their verbal exchange, including Burns saying, Why the hell don't you say so? And Lowton had stepped forwards, hand extended, saying, I will take none of your cheek, Burns. Bible told the court he'd looked away at the crucial moment, but when he looked back, Lowton was holding his throat and Burns was on the same side of the studding sail rope as the deceased. Bible said he saw Burns return his knife to its sheath on his right side and then go back under the rope. Bible had said to Burns, You have stabbed the man. He replied, I know I have. Burns' ducking was meant to show he'd not simply lashed out reflexively, but actively made to attack. Further, Robert Bible said, it wasn't until Henry Lowton had been carried to the cabin that Burns had first made the claim to have been hit by the second mate. Under cross-examination, Bible again admitted it had been very dark and it was possible Lowton had hit Burns without him seeing it. But he again defended Lowton's character, saying he'd never inspired fear nor used an angry word, though he had shaken the Dutch boy on occasion. Bible told the court that Burns had revealed more of himself during the voyage. Burns had told him that he'd once been in jail, down in Melbourne. Burns had supposedly said he'd had a better time of it in jail than at sea because he'd been given a job as an assistant cook. Next to testify was seaman George Cooper. He said that when Henry Lowton had first issued the order to take in the studding sails, Burns had grumbled, saying, It's always the way when there's a cap full of wind. Soon after had come the fatal moment. But George Cooper also hadn't seen exactly what had happened. Like Robert Bible, he'd only seen the immediate aftermath. But George Cooper also said he knew more of what had come before the stabbing. Burns, he said, had been in the habit of brandishing his knife and saying in Spanish, Look out, man, or something like that. Burns had also spoken of his experiences on the Peruvian side in the recent Pacific War, and described how he'd killed Chilean enemies by driving his knife into them and then twisting the blade. While Cooper wasn't aware that Lowton had disliked Burns, he had heard the two men quarrelling one Sunday morning. And he said that when one of the crew had mentioned this argument to Burns and advised him to watch out or Lowton would, quote, go for him, Burns had made a striking response. He'd said he would kill Lowton if he were to attempt anything of the sort. George Cooper, though, qualified what had sounded like a threat from Lowton. He told the court the crew were in the habit of saying, I'll go you, but it was, quote, always in fun. Cooper said he'd never seen Lowton strike the Dutch boy, though he had observed him to knock the lad's hat off. Cooper also testified he hadn't initially heard Burns say that Lowton had hit him. Witness Daniel Lean, who'd been on the portside watch, told the court he'd seen Burns, quote, dive under the studding sail and fly up into the deceased's face with his right hand. This witness corroborated previous accounts of the immediate aftermath. Daniel Lean also said he'd heard dark threats issued by the accused. He and Burns had spoken three days before the stabbing, 
and at this time, Burns had said that Lowton had been dismissive of the crew of the Douglas. Its men, Lowton had supposedly said, were more like boys. To seasoned sea dogs, this was insulting. Witness Daniel Lean told the court that Burns had said to him, Let them say what they like, but don't let them put a hand on me, or I'll fix them so that they shall never lay a hand upon anybody else. While this testimony from Daniel Lean was supposed to support the Crown's case, it actually depicted William Burns as a man who would tolerate verbal insults, but would stab someone if physically attacked. Burns's defence counsel, Mr Pater, cross-examined Daniel Lean. Why, he wanted to know, was this claim about Burns diving under the studding sail not made earlier? Lean said he had told the captain in the first instance, it just hadn't been set down in the logbook at that time. Crew members James Morse and the English boy George Clark were also briefly questioned, but added nothing of importance. The Dutch boy, Matthias Day, said he didn't think he'd been the plaything of Henry Lowton. He said the second mate had never shaken him, but he had cuffed him twice and a third time knocked off his cap. With the Crown's arguments done, Mr Pater opened Burns's defence. He told the jury the question they had to answer was whether the prisoner was guilty of murder or manslaughter. William Burns, he said, was a quiet man who joined the ship Douglas with good certificates and his conduct aboard had been all that was desirable. Mr Pater told the court, quote, It was shown that the deceased made an advance on the prisoner with his hand upraised and it was admitted by Bible that a blow could have been struck without his having seen it. As for Burns supposedly diving under the studding sail sheet to make his attack, it was very strange that the men had not mentioned this in their initial reports. Captain Wilson, Mr Pater said, was a cautious and an educated man, and he'd made a careful report of the affray. But it wasn't until some time after this first report that this ducking under the rope had come into it. This, Mr Pater said, was because the crew had had plenty of time to talk about what had happened, and in telling and retelling the tale, exaggeration and even fabrication had crept into their corroborations. Mr Pater said he believed the jury would find that William Burns had been provoked, and they would find him guilty only of manslaughter. To underpin this as legally correct, Mr. Pater cited a legal opinion given in a similar case in London by Baron Park, who was regarded as one of England's greatest judges. Quote, if a person receives a blow and immediately avenges it with any weapon he has in his hand, then the offence is only manslaughter, provided the blow is to be attributed to anger arising from that previous provocation for anger is a passion to which good and bad men are all subject. Mr Pater also put it to the jury that Burns hadn't meant to kill Lowton. He suggested that Burns had only been trying to stab the offending hand, raised in anger, and then used to strike him. But the jury, Mr Pater said, could hear all of this from the man himself, because William Burns was going to testify under oath. An accused murderer giving sworn testimony, which would be subject to cross-examination, was unusual. Typically a man charged might make an unsworn statement from the dock, but as this wasn't under oath, 
and therefore not subject to cross-examination, juries were less likely to believe such utterances. William Burns now took the stand. He told the jury, Previously to joining the Douglas, I had been all my lifetime at sea. I had 19 certificates. I am not a married man, but I am the support of my mother. On the night of September 23, the deceased gave the order to haul down the studding sails. I and some more were on the forecastle head, and the deceased said, What are you doing up there? I came down and said, I thought you were going to haul down the top stun sails first. No, he said, we'll haul down this first. I said, Why did you not say so? And he replied, stepping forward, I'll have none of your cheek, and hit me on the side of the face. Burns continued, He stepped right forward and struck me with his fist severely. I then hauled out my knife and struck at his hand with it. He said, Is that it, Burns? And he rolled against the side of the boat. The captain called out, What is the matter forward there? And someone replied, The second mate is stabbed, sir. The captain asked, Who did it? And I replied, That I did. Burns went on, I had no grudge against the deceased. He was a man, sir, a good man wherever he went. He was a quick-tempered man, and I am a quick-tempered sort of cove, I am sorry to say. I did not know myself how the blow was struck. I don't know how the knife struck his neck, because he is a big man. I never dived under the sheet. The prosecutor cross-examined, but Burns stuck to his story. Quote, We were on opposite sides of the sheet. I told the captain when I went aft that I had been struck. That was before I went into the cabin. Burns was saying he hadn't added the self-defense claim as an afterthought as other witnesses had suggested. As for what had been said in court about Burns making earlier threats, he told the jury, quote, It was not until after September 23 that anything was said against me about threats or anything else, and that was after the men had talked in the forecastle. Here, he had a point. If he'd been making threats and the crew had been worried about him, why had no one said anything during the first seven weeks of the voyage. The cross-examination continued, turning to his war service. Burns now told the court, I was over four years in Chile in a war vessel. I was on the Peruvian side. I have not been in the habit of describing what I had been in the habit of doing to Chileans with a knife. I have said in the forecastle what I saw during the war, but I never described a blow made with a knife and twisting it around or driving it in. I was taken prisoner of war from the Waska and, on being released, went on the Union. What about the claim he'd claimed to have been in jail in Melbourne? Burns admitted he had said that, but he'd just been pulling the legs of his fellow crew members. Quote, I have never been in Melbourne. I told Bible, just for pastime, that I was in the Melbourne jail for 18 months, but I never said that I had better times at jail than at sea. I never told him I was made assistant cook there. I was never in jail for any offence. Burns told the court he had been to Australia one time before. He'd then arrived in Adelaide as a sailor on a bark. That had been about eight years ago. He'd only stayed briefly until he got work on a ship called the Earl of Dalhousie, which had sailed soon afterwards for Scotland. During his testimony, Burns said, quote, I say that Harris saw the deceased strike me. He was nearest, alongside of me. When the deceased hit me, I had not the knife in my hand. His honour called this crew member Samuel Harris. 
Harris said he'd been within seven or eight feet of Henry Lowton, between him and the foremast. Harris's testimony was reported, quote, Prisoner was on the top gallant forecastle and came down on the forehead side of the sheet, and Lowton and I went on the aft side. Saw prisoner make a jump at the second mate and afterwards return his knife to the sheath. Heard blood flowing and saw the deceased put his hand to his neck. Should say they were about a couple of paces apart when the prisoner made the jump. He darted under the sheet. Before this, the second mate had put up his finger and said, Burns, I want none of your cheek. Could not swear whether he touched the prisoner with his hand or not. Was looking on at all that happened. His Honour asked Harris if he'd seen Lowton raise his hand like this previously. Harris said yes, Lowton had raised his hand like this when talking to him. Now, the Crown Solicitor made his closing argument. He said that even if the jury should come to the conclusion that Lowton had struck Burns, the retaliation Burns had given was out of all proportion in its savagery, and thus this was murder, not manslaughter. He said the witnesses had given their evidence clearly and without bias, and that the defence's objection about the captain's logs was without foundation. Defence counsel Mr Pater closed by saying that William Burns had been provoked and had been hit. He'd then stabbed his attacker in the heat of the moment and without malice. Burns had not denied the action. Instead, he'd immediately told the captain what had happened and why. Further, he'd made no attempt to throw the knife away. This was clearly manslaughter. The Chief Justice now summed up. He explained to the jury the difference between murder, manslaughter and justifiable homicide. He told the jury that if they believed that William Burns had used the words why the hell didn't you say so before to Henry Lowton, then Burns had been guilty of grave disrespect to a superior officer. He'd given great provocation to a man whose orders he was bound to obey. Then, if in resenting this insult, Henry Lowton had indeed hit William Burns, though this was unlawful, it was not an act sufficient to exculpate the prisoner from the consequences of using a deadly weapon. Further, if Burns had said those words provoking the situation, he didn't have the same excuse as another man who might have been hit out of the blue by a stranger. The jury would have to ask itself if a reasonable man would have reacted the way that Burns had to being hit under those circumstances. That was, whether the prisoner had acted under the influence of anger reasonably occasioned, or whether the stabbing was the wanton and malicious act of a malevolent mind. His Honour reviewed the evidence for the jury. He pointed out that it hadn't been until he testified that Burns had claimed he'd only said to Lowton, why didn't you say so before? Burns had not previously contradicted the why the hell didn't you say so version as recorded in the captain's log. That was even though these log entries had been read to him several times aboard the Douglas and he'd had the opportunity to contradict it then. If the jury didn't believe Burns on this point, his honour saw nothing that could reduce the crime to manslaughter. That was because once the prisoner had irritated and even insulted his superior officer, it had been the prisoner's duty to restrain his own temper afterwards. 
His Honour said the jury had heard that Henry Lowton was in the habit of raising his hand when talking. This wasn't that unusual. Frenchmen did it, as did a lot of lawyers. But Burns claimed he'd been struck by Lowton. Yet no one had seen this, and there'd been no mark on Burns. The jury would have to decide who they believed. His Honour said that witnesses had told the court the prisoner had jumped under the studding sail rope and made his attack at the deceased's neck. The defence had asked why this claim had not been included in the captain's first formal report. His Honour said the jury had to remember that the crew members were illiterate men and that Captain Wilson had warned them that their statements had to be within what they were prepared to swear to rather than detailed accounts. Given that, they may have initially given only bare-bones accounts, not feeling confident until later to elaborate on what they'd seen. The jury also had to consider the nature of the wound. His Honour said it appeared as if the knife had been twisted in Henry Lowton's neck. He pointed out that it was only today at trial that Burns had suggested he'd killed Lowton accidentally and only been aiming for the man's hand. The Chief Justice said it was unlikely that a man who'd angrily draw a knife would only stab at a hand. Concluding, His Honour said the crime would only be reduced to manslaughter if the jury found that the prisoner did not use the provoking words, and then only if they found that he'd acted in the sort of momentary anger that might be experienced by a reasonable and ordinary man subjected to the indignity of being hit. With these words ringing in their ears, the jury retired to deliberate. Had William Burns been an angry man with a short fuse, who, having already previously quarrelled with Henry Lowton, expected the second mate to go for him, and upon seeing that raised hand, had overreacted, ducked under the studding sail rope, lunged and stabbed and twisted the blade? Had Burns lied about Lowton hitting him? Or had Henry Lowton, who appeared to have a temper and sometimes to be threatening, actually struck Burns? Did the smaller man simply lash out in anger and self-defense, the blade not aimed anywhere in particular, and once the knife was in Lowton's neck, was a twisting wound created simply when the mortally wounded man had tried to step back and away before Burns withdrew his blade? What no one could doubt was that it had all happened in the blink of an eye, on a darkened ship deck, and that no crew member had seen the blade go in, nor could anyone swear that Lowton had not struck Burns first. Murder or manslaughter? Given the evidence could take the jury only so far, their verdict would in part come down to what they thought and felt about William Burns. The 12 men of the jury, of course, saw the defendant in the flesh. They heard him plead his case, watched him as he heard witnesses testify. But the jury couldn't consider information other than that presented in court. We can. We can take a look at Burns' backstory, and that can help us get a better idea of the man, and a better idea of whether the jury came to the right verdict. During his testimony, William Burns had made a few claims that are worth examining. One was that he'd come to Adelaide about eight years earlier in a bark. 
that makes it possible he was the William Burns Seaman of the Bark Glen Osmond who was charged with desertion in Adelaide in October 1873. Newspapers at the time reported that this William Burns and a crewmate were punished with one month in jail and each had two pounds deducted from their wages to pay for the men who had to cover for them. If this was the same William Burns, he was just 18 or so then, and a minor act of desertion doesn't really tell us that much about him. But another of his claims, which is verifiable, might tell us much more about his state of mind. As he'd say, quote, I was over four years in Chile in a war vessel. I was on the Peruvian side. I was taken prisoner of war from the Huasca, and on being released, went on the Union. When I read this, it meant nothing to me, as it probably doesn't to most people. But in 1882, the men of the jury would have known at least the basics of what Burns was talking about. That was because the War of the Pacific, fought between Chile and the Bolivian-Peruvian alliance, had been going since 1879, with no end in sight. William Burns, like a handful of other British sailors, had served as a gun for hire in the Peruvian Navy. He was aboard the Huascar, the Peruvian Navy's flagship. This ironclad was 190 feet long and weighed 1,100 tons. Two-masted and steam-propelled by a single screw, Huascar was capable of 12 knots. The ship had power, and it also had firepower. Its revolving turret held two 300-pound cannons, and Huascar was protected by iron armour plates that were nearly 5 inches thick. In other words, Wasker packed an almighty punch, and it could withstand almighty punches. According to William Burns, he'd served with the Peruvian Navy aboard the Wasker from 1878. That was one year before the War of the Pacific broke out. The Wasker, under its longtime captain, Miguel Grau, was pivotal for Peru in the early months of the conflict. The ironclad made daring raids on enemy ports and shipping. Huasca was so disruptive that Chile had to delay its plan for a land invasion of Peru. For months, all military efforts were focused on finding and stopping Huasca. In May 1879, the Chilean Navy had blockaded the Peruvian port of Iquique. When Captain Grau learned that the Peruvian ironclads had departed, leaving behind only a wooden corvette named Esmeralda and two smaller vessels, he steamed Huasca towards a showdown. At Iquique, he called on Esmeralda to surrender. The reply was a barrage from Chilean cannons. Unable to use their own guns, for fear of hitting Iquique behind the Chilean ship, Huasca repeatedly rammed the Esmeralda. Finally, it got the corvette into a position where it could fire at close range, and a double-shot blast from Huasca's guns killed 40 to 50 Chilean sailors. As Esmeralda began to sink, its captain led a handful of his men to board Huasca, trying to take control. They were killed in bloody close-quarters combat. After four hours, Huasca had secured a significant Peruvian victory. For the loss of eight men, they'd killed 143 of the enemy and wounded or taken prisoner another 57. Over the next five months, Huasca engaged in hit-and-run tactics. During this guerrilla campaign, it reportedly captured 14 Chilean transports, 
including one that was carrying a cavalry regiment of 258 men, along with their horses, armaments and supplies. Then, on the 8th of October 1879, Waska got its comeuppance. The Lima correspondent of the Panama Star newspaper wrote a definitive account that the New York Times saw fit to run under the headline, The Trafalgar of the Pacific. This giving us an idea of how epic this battle was considered by those living in the late 19th century. What happened was this. At Angamos, Huasca and the Corvette Union were encircled by the Chilean fleet. The Peruvian captains had anticipated this might happen sooner or later. As they'd agreed, the Union fled in a bid to draw away enemy ships. But this didn't work out so well. Huasca was outgunned by 12 guns to two, and the main enemy ironclads had armour that was twice as thick. Huasca was blasted and rammed and battered, the ship's decks swimming in the blood of its men. The New York Times reported, quote, The 8th of October 1879 will always be held in Peruvian annals as a glorious but at the same time disastrous anniversary. On that day, the greatest combat between ironclad vessels that the world has ever seen took place, and the historic Huasca was crushed and captured by the Chilean armed ships. As the New York Times reported, Peru's greatest hero, who'd been promoted, fought to the last. Quote, Rear Admiral Grau, with a greater portion of his officers and men, died fighting as men should, at the foot of their guns. William Burns had been on the front lines of the carnage. He would say that during this battle, that was bloody beyond imagination, he'd dropped to his knees and prayed to God that he be spared so he might see his mother again. In the wake of the battle, in November 1879, a list of the three dozen English crew members who'd been taken prisoner was issued by Chile. Many were noted as seriously wounded. The list, as published in the Manchester Courier and many newspapers around the world, included this sombre remark. It is feared that if there were any other Englishmen, they are either killed or missing. William Burns was on the list, but he wasn't seriously wounded. His prayer had been answered. Burns was set free in what was likely a prisoner exchange, the War of the Pacific being noted for the gentlemanly conduct on both sides. He'd then served aboard the Union. From November 1879, the Union was an important transport and supply ship. In March 1880, under cover of darkness, Union penetrated the blockade of Arica to resupply a Peruvian garrison. Once the sun rose, as the ship was unloading at port, it came under fire from enemy ships, and this included the Huasca, which was now an important asset in the Chilean navy. Incredibly, the Union broke back through the blockade to escape, and then outran pursuing ships. But a month later, Union was damaged and trapped during a blockade at Kiao. Having learned from their experience with Huasca, this time the Peruvians scuttled the Union to stop it from falling into enemy hands. So, over the course of his war, William Burns had witnessed and survived three of what were then considered to be the most thrilling naval battles of the era. He returned to England in one piece. But despite his prayer and his good intention, he didn't go and see his mother. Instead, 
he spent his money in places of ill repute. Then, on the 1st of May, 1882, he signed on to serve Captain John Wilson aboard the Douglas. William Burns's war experiences would have been perceived back then as thrilling adventures. But might Burns have lashed out at Henry Lowton precisely because he'd survived these bloody kill-or-be-killed close-quarters battles? Neither Burns or his defender framed it this way in court, and it would be another century before war experiences were said to contribute to what was known as post-traumatic stress disorder. Could Burns have been suffering from PTSD? It's very likely. Could this have played a part in him stabbing Henry Lowton? Again, that is possible. But it would also seem that whatever was in him was in him before he joined the war in the Pacific. During his trial, William Burns had said he'd been joking around with Robert Bible when he'd told him he once spent 18 months in jail. Burns had gone so far as to say in court, quote, I was never in jail for any offence. During a trial, an accused's prior convictions are not admissible. That is, unless they're introduced by the defence. Burns, by making this claim that he'd never been in jail, might have had his record introduced into evidence. It'd seem he was gambling that Adelaide authorities didn't have access to his record in Melbourne. The prisoner had thrown the die by telling a lie, and he'd gotten away with it. As the jury deliberated, what they didn't know was that William Burns had been in Melbourne jail. He'd been there in 1876, before he went to war, and he'd been behind bars for stabbing a man. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Dark Threats and Darker Secrets which is part two of the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Birdman of Adelaide Jail. The third and final part, Not Dead But Gone, will be on general release later this week. But it's available now ad-free for Apple and Patreon supporters. As I've said, you can access this and all bonus content with a free trial. Links are in your show notes. As always, thanks for listening and thanks for supporting. 